There's no reason why theaters can't coexist with streaming. People all have kitchens in their houses, but they go out to eat in restaurants. And the world is big enough, consumer appetites are large enough that we can all live harmoniously. Wall Street was basically cheering on Netflix to spend more, more, more. Bigger than Amazon Prime Video, bigger than Hulu, bigger than Disney Plus. YouTube is a juggernaut. It's an endless source of entertainment. Nearly 221 million subscribers across 190 countries, over a billion hours watched for a single TV show, a near 10% hold of global internet traffic, 226 awards, and at one point a market cap of $314 billion. For 25 years, one company changed the landscape of film and TV forever, with revenue and subscriber base growing a whopping average of more than 30% a year. But things are looking different for Netflix in 2022. In Q1, its revenue growth fell to just over 2%, compared to more than 7% in the same quarter the year prior. Its stock dropped 35%, and $50 billion was wiped off its market cap. The company lost nearly 1 million subscribers, and competitors are catching up. Investors and Netflix watchers are wondering, the days of the astronomical growth are simply over. Blockbuster Total Access, Netflix. Essentially, they work the same way. You order movies online, they come right to your mailbox, you watch them, then mail them back in a prepaid envelope. This is an ad from Blockbuster's marketing campaign that launched in February of 2007. Its goal? To take a shot at then-rival Netflix, who had a similar business model of renting DVDs online. For many years, Blockbuster simply ignored Netflix. And one of the charts that I maintained kind of showed different quotes over time that Blockbuster leadership had. And one of the things they consistently said was, this online thing, no more than 5%, no more than 5%. So they, they purposefully ignored us for years. This is Dr. Joel Meyer. He's currently a professor at the University of Richmond. And from 1999 to 2007, he was the marketing director at Netflix. An early, early version of Netflix had DVD rentals and DVD sales. Walmart, Best Buy, et cetera, they're going to begin to procure inventory and they're gonna have economies of scale that we're simply never gonna have. And so in that moment, they realized sales is not the future. They made the decision to kill all sales, right? To kill all sales and to bet big and solely on rental. So they overnight said, nope, sales are done. They killed 95% of revenue. They took all those resources. They aimed it at rental. The company went public in 2002 at a share price of $15. For the next five years, the company and its business model of subscription-based renting was an immediate hit as revenue and subscribers soared. Netflix was facing steep competition from then-rival Blockbuster in the renting wars. But for Netflix, the DVD-by-mail business was never in its future. In July of 99, okay? I, I go into the office, it's totally chaotic, it's disheveled, it's just unlike anything I've ever seen in my life. And I meet this guy who's the CEO, Mark Randolph, and we're in his office and we're chatting and he's really relaxed and really mellow and just, and he tells me something that I just struck me as like, what the hell are you talking about? He said to me, yeah, DVD's already dead. In 2007, the company introduced streaming. $40 million was invested in data centers. Netflix's Watch Now feature became an instant hit, and slowly but surely, the company pivoted from DVD by mail to a streaming-first company. 
Streaming revolutionized how film fanatics and TV junkies consumed content. Studios and production companies weren't accustomed to licensing for streaming, allowing Netflix to strike cheap deals. So this is how Netflix built its business. It basically went to all of the different uh, uh, producers of media and said, we will pay you tens of millions of dollars for your stuff that is not currently live on TV. And these companies said, great, nobody else is paying for this. So this is just free money for us. As Netflix became more and more aggressive about the rights that they want, specifically for television shows, they want something called stacking rights. They want the ability to show the entire library all at once. Okay. And until this point in the early aughts, um, the only companies who had the rights to distribute that type of stuff were the studios themselves when they sold them on box sets of DVDs or um, the cable companies. In 2007, the same year Netflix turned to streaming, Amazon and then startup Hulu jumped on the streaming bandwagon. The next 10 years proved to be crucial for Netflix. As the company expanded its reach and content offerings, Netflix indulged in a growth story few companies had witnessed prior. In 2012, its first ever TV show, Lilyhammer, launched. It was a critical first step for Netflix, introducing the binge model by releasing all episodes at once. The following year, Netflix introduced more originals with its first hit, House of Cards. In 2013, Netflix's focus on streaming started to pay off. Stock prices surged, revenues jumped, and subscriber growth skyrocketed. By 2017, through its expansion abroad and its content lineup, Netflix eclipsed 100 million subscribers, revenues neared $12 billion, and its stock prices reached close to $200. Netflix outspent competitors on content as it developed one of the largest libraries online. Netflix became an aggregate of content from other studios and major media companies, and licensed content accounted for 93.2% of Netflix's catalog. In the years 2018, 2019, 2020, if you take a look at the Netflix stock price, it is just up and to the right. It is up and up and up. Wall Street was basically cheering on Netflix to spend more, more, more. That was a huge irritant to the legacy media companies who did not have the same mandate from Wall Street. Wall Street was telling those companies, we want you to be more uh, financially responsible with your spend. Whereas what it was telling Netflix was basically, if you can get all the customers now, we don't care how much money you need to spend. What we see here is a destruction of the legacy media model, as long as you guys can just keep adding subscribers. Because the more subscribers you add, the more people will say, you know what, I can live on Netflix. So it was sort of the ultimate disruption. That's what Wall Street was saying to Netflix. Between 2012 and 2020, those legacy media companies had lost 25 million customers as fewer and fewer Americans were turning to cable or satellite. So naturally, they wanted in on streaming. At that point, the older media companies, meaning Disney, NBC Universal, Paramount Global, Warner Media, they all decided, you know what, the, the jig is up here. We can't just give away all of our stuff to Netflix. Instead, we're gonna pull back all of that stuff, create our own streaming service, and we're gonna end this idea of licensing our best stuff even if it's old, to another company. Disney is expected to unveil details of its new streaming service. Tim Cook just announcing that Apple TV Plus will start to roll out its first shows on November 1st. NBC Universal's streaming service in the works is called Peacock. HBO Max. Which the new streaming services needed content and they needed it fast. One way was to take back the content they licensed to Netflix. And Disney, NBC Universal, and Warner Media did exactly that. 
While the content mass exodus was tough on Netflix, it didn't come as a complete surprise. They always knew that they were gonna have to make their own stuff because they knew that they were gonna put a lot of people out of business. So they had to prepare for a time when they lost the most popular content on their platform. Rewind back to 2016, Netflix CFO David Wells announced the push for more Netflix originals. And in just six years, that number of original content went from 2.8% to roughly 50% of total content. There is some value of Netflix for having licensed content. In 2021, Netflix's most watched show was Criminal Minds, accumulating over 30 billion minutes watched across 12 seasons. Though licensed content made up most of the top shows for Netflix that year, shows like Squid Game proved to be a massive hit, with one season pulling in roughly half of the viewing time as Criminal Minds. However, that value of licensed content is quickly moving off the platform. Criminal Minds, the most streamed show in 2021, was pulled from Netflix and moved over to Paramount+. Plus. Netflix is still the most dominant streamer in terms of overall subscriber base, but Disney Plus is already catching up since launching in 2019. Netflix holds firm with 220.7 million subscribers. Disney Plus already has 152.1. Disney's other streamers, Hulu and ESPN Plus, account for 46.2 million and 22.8 million respectively. Disney's total subscriber base across all three platforms accounts for 221 million subscribers. In its Q1 of 2022, Netflix reported 200,000 subscribers were lost, and many analysts and investors feared that Q2 would look even worse. On July 19, 2022, Netflix announced its Q2 earnings. The company beat expectations as Netflix lost nearly 1 million subscribers instead of the projected 2 million. Yet its rival Disney Plus continued to grow rapidly, with 14.4 million new subscribers in its last quarter. For so long, Netflix appeared to be unreachable, but that's all changing as Netflix is losing subscribers and its competitors have more creative offerings. Netflix sits in an interesting place almost exclusively in the media universe all of a sudden, which is they're the only one that only does premium video subscription and only video premium subscription. So they are competing with not only people who do exactly what they do, but they're also competing with uh, huge trillion dollar platforms. But Disney has sports, local news, ABC, Hulu, ESPN, and they're able to bundle those things together and offer a myriad of services to the end user that Netflix simply cannot. Does not have sports, does not have news, does not have local. In addition, Disney can bundle in uh, theme park tickets. Paramount Plus just teamed with Walmart Plus to create a really interesting bundle that I think is gonna do really, really well. And then you look at Amazon and Apple who are offering a raft of different services as a bundle to the consumers. Yes, you can order Amazon Prime Video or Apple TV Plus as a standalone product, but a lot of consumers take Amazon Prime as a bundle with free delivery of their Prilosec and their audio subscriptions and a number of other discounts at Whole Foods. During its challenging first half of 2022, Netflix cut about 450 jobs and announced it would reduce spending growth until 2024. Yet the company still plans on investing an estimated $17 billion on content. Netflix has always been known to spend lavishly on original content, and it was that kind of spending that was cheered on by investors on Wall Street, though the sentiment now has recently changed. If Wall Street is now no longer valuing Netflix on pure subscriber growth, it may start valuing on Netflix by other more traditional metrics such as net income or revenue or uh, 
EBITDA margins or whatever it may be. Over the past year, Netflix's stock has plummeted significantly. It peaked at over $690 per share in 2021 as the company was riding the pandemic stay-at-home orders to its lowest in 2022 at $175 per share, though the stock took off after beating projections in Q2. There would have to be a, a, a new narrative that overwhelmed the media industry in order for Netflix to get to $600 a share anytime soon. In order for Netflix to get back on top of the streaming wars it helped start, the company is planning on making some drastic changes to its business model and its content. Changes that would hopefully secure new subscribers, retain existing ones, and improve its stock, such as ads and cracking down on password sharing. Maybe the biggest, most impactful new thing that Netflix is planning on launching is an advertising supported tier. This will dramatically lower the price of Netflix. So it may introduce a whole new audience out there. The second one is uh, forcing all of these password sharers to actually pay for a Netflix subscription. Again, I don't know what percentage of the 100 million subscribers that Netflix says uh, are sharing passwords will actually sign up. The way Netflix plans on doing this is to actually go after the account holder that's sharing the password and asking the holder, hey, are you willing to pay an extra couple dollars per month? However, including advertisements to content, well, that may be easier said than done. Netflix is gonna have to pay for the right to sell ads in the content that's already running on their platform. And they now have to ask for permission to insert ads into that content. And the studios are answering the phone and saying, hi, you destroyed our ecosystem. Yeah, you wanna put ads in that? Cool, cool, cool. That'll be a lot of money. After its rough first half in 2022, Netflix still believes there's room for growth with lofty goals to reach up to 800 million subscribers worldwide. What is the total addressable market of global streaming subscribers? Netflix used to say this number was somewhere between five and 800 million. Again, Netflix has 220 million subscribers today. So if that number is right, then there will be a second act here. And Netflix will again start adding customers like crazy this is just a temporary lull. I think the going thought on Wall Street is that that number is way too aggressive. Netflix declined CNBC's request for an interview, but with global hits like Stranger Things, Squid Game, and Money Heist, Netflix revolutionized how industries distribute content and how audiences consume it. But it's still unclear how Netflix will continue its story. Movie theaters across the U.S. and worldwide have been dealt a massive blow over the past two years. Overall domestic box office numbers plummeted from 2019 to over $4 billion as of August 2022. Movies intended for the big screen ended up on streaming sites. A lot of the studios had to scramble and immediately put some of their films. I remember The Invisible Man had been out, was doing really well, and in mid-March had to go to streaming. As the pandemic escalated, the film studios made every effort to solidify their streaming services and sure up subscribership. And AMC and other major theater chains in the US were at the forefront of this change. Some small independent theaters closed down permanently, as bigger theaters closed down for months at the start of the pandemic. 
According to some estimates, roughly 1,000 screens out of 42,000 screens were closed down due to COVID-19. As for AMC, the pandemic was chaotic. It was out of cash, nearly bankrupt, and the 2021 8 meme movement quite possibly saved the company. Yet AMC is looking to stage a comeback. The company announced in August 2022 that it plans to issue a dividend to all common shareholders of 517 million shares of preferred stock under the ticker APE. They saved AMC, and that's when they saved AMC. We had some, we had some real money in the bank. We have a massive valuation of our company right now uh, in market cap, and we need to grow into that valuation. And I think a way to do that is to expand the appetite of AMC and re reach beyond just being a pure movie theater play. Well over two years of anemic box office attendance, lack of movies debuting on the big screen, and shorter exhibition windows, can AMC avoid the onslaught of competition from streamers and make the comeback that it's looking for? In 1920, brothers Maurice, Edward, and Barney Dubinsky purchased their first theater in Kansas City, Missouri. About a decade later, the Dubinskys owned 40 theaters across Missouri and Kansas. In 1961, the theater changed its name to American Multi Cinemas, or AMC. During this time, AMC's multi-theater approach was a game changer, allowing for more movie choices for audiences at one location. AMC is a very innovative company, and when you look at the evolution of seating, for instance, just the sheer size of the seats, cup holders, all that, AMC was always on top of that kind of thing. And then beyond that, loyalty programs like the Stubbs program, and then sort of adopting a, a subscription-based purchasing ability. By 2012, AMC would see its growth expand rapidly. Dalian Wanda Group acquired AMC that year. The $2.6 billion deal was paired with a $500 million investment to renovate all AMC theaters, making the company the largest theater chain in the world. Since AMC's acquisition from fiscal year 2013 to fiscal year 2016, AMC nearly tripled its number of theaters, and by 2019, the company operated over 1,000 theaters around the world. As AMC expanded, so did its revenue. The company saw stable growth, invested heavily into their own theaters, they added restaurants, IMAX and Dolby screens, expanded their own film distribution company Open Road Films, and even established their own subscription service. These heavy investments allowed AMC to record record revenues year over year, but that came to a quick halt in March 2020. The top three theater chains, AMC, Cineworld, and Cinemark, closed from March 2020 to slowly reopening in August of that same year. The domestic box office plummeted, costing the industry over $9 billion in revenue. There were very few movies to show because studios were delaying the releases of films. Uh, and so we were showing old movies from 20 and 30 years ago, and nobody came to our theaters. The top three theater chains faced billions of dollars in lost revenue in just one year. AMC alone, lost nearly $4.3 billion in total revenues. We went from a world in the domestic marketplace, US and Canada, that had over 5,000 theaters open to literally overnight to under 100 theaters. And in particular, a huge theater chain like AMC, whose business, along with many other companies, was almost decimated overnight. We had no idea that we were almost gonna run out of cash five different times in 2020. A big 
multinational company, $5 billion plus in revenue. Very stable industry, mature industry. Uh, it wasn't growing all that fast, but certainly wasn't shrinking. All of a sudden, we had no revenue at all, just overnight, gone. By October 2020, AMC resumed operations with theater capacity only reaching about 20 to 40%. The company garnered about 2.2 million guests to their venues, an 85% drop from the year prior. That same month, AMC was on the verge of filing for bankruptcy. The movie titles kept on getting delayed uh, because studios understandably didn't want to release their big blockbuster movies where they spent hundreds of millions of dollars on in the middle of the pandemic when they were afraid no one would show up at theaters. So we announced in December of 2020, mid-December 2020, that we needed to raise at least $750 million to make it at least through June of 2021 uh, for AMC to survive. And we were very much running down two parallel tracks. Uh, we, wanted to, we wanted to do everything in our power to prevent bankruptcy. Uh, and that meant raising money. And that was uh, clearly my uh, uh, singular goal. But if we had to go into bankruptcy, we were preparing to do it professionally and smartly. While AMC and other theater chains were nearing their breaking point, this is when streaming services seized upon a massive opportunity. Legacy streamers like Netflix, Amazon, and Hulu already had a pipeline of content and solid business models. But others wanted in. Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus launched in 2019, while HBO Max, Peacock, and Paramount Plus launched in 2020 and 2021 respectively. Most films typically slated for the theaters found homes on these streamers, all of which tested different business models. Disney Plus had its premiere access, which garnered $60 million in rentals for the film Black Widow on its opening weekend. HBO Max streamed their 2021 theatrical releases at no extra cost while also debuting them in cinemas. In 2021, when movies slowly began trickling back into theaters, a part of the long-standing business model was its theatrical window which went from 90 days to 45 days, and in some cases, 17 days. Studios will average up to 80 or 90% of box office sales, depending on the film. That's usually applicable to bigger films, like a Marvel release or, or anything that's high stakes along those lines, but it tends to average out over time, and theaters will collect a higher share of revenues, even just day, starting days after an opening weekend. While the new change to the theatrical window has been met with an overall positive response, the new theatrical window could impact smaller theater chains the most. At face value, the change down from 90 to 45 sounds more drastic than it really is. However, smaller theaters need some of that revenue more and they rely on not just the blockbusters, but we're, we're talking about art house theaters that have had a, a longer recovery period to go here. And honestly, until this year, it, it was it was a, a real struggle and it's it's still a big challenge. As best as we can tell, about a thousand screens out of 42,000 closed. And we don't know that those are all permanent. Some of them are, you know, some underperforming screens for larger circuits. Some of them are individual companies. In 2021, though still hampered by the lack of films debuting, the sentiment surrounding theaters began to shift and box office revenues nearly doubled from the year prior. Signaling a return of the movie theater, not only was Spider-Man No Way Home a, a, a a great film, but it posted the second biggest domestic opening weekend of all time, all time. And then of course, now we've seen over the course of the summer of 2022, almost a total return to normalcy in terms of not just having one movie dominate, 
Spider-Man No Way Home, for example, was responsible for 92% of the overall weekend box office domestically when it opened. That's a very top heavy marketplace. Now we're seeing where you can have five films all doing well, duking it out at the box office. While streaming first was the primary focus early on in the pandemic, the companies who owned these streaming services needed to get their films back into theaters. Five out of the eight most popular streaming services are backed by film studios with backlogs of films that needed to turn a profit at the cinemas. Big temple blockbusters look to exclusively be debuted in theaters. Fast forward to today, so far in 2022, both theaters and studios are poised to make a comeback as record-breaking attendance and the overall movie-going sentiment has been revitalized. Basically about 8% behind the summer of 2019. And if you look at July, we're actually about 35% ahead. I, I think, you know, there's no question that audiences are ready to come back to the movies. Uh, you know, we had $300 million opening weekends over the course of six weeks, and that's only happened twice before in the history of movies. Business models developed during the pandemic for streamers like Disney Plus and HBO Max are now gone from their respective platforms as they focus on theatrical releases. This is a content-driven industry now. Studios are going to be producing more and more and more. They're going to figure out in the long run where some of those things belong. And sometimes it's going to be on streaming. Sometimes it's going to be in theaters. And ultimately, people will choose with their wallets. As for AMC's comeback, the company learned from its mistakes during the pandemic that it cannot rely on the moviegoing experience alone. More recently, the company made some head-turning investments, such as investing into a gold mine and launched their own retail popcorn and concessions business. We've got to take this company, AMC Entertainment, much further than just being the operator of a thousand movie theaters in the US, Europe, and the Middle East. Um, we have a massive valuation of our company right now uh, in market cap, and we need to grow into that valuation. And I think a way to do that is to expand the appetite of AMC and re reach beyond just being a pure movie theater play and do other things as well in the future as we did movie theaters in the past. AMC in its Q2 of 2022 raked in nearly $1.2 billion in revenue, a drastic jump from 2021 and an even bigger jump from 2020. The company also announced in a press release that not only would 517 million in preferred ape shares will be created, but the shares will have the same voting rights as AMC's common stock, citing that, given the flexibility that apes will give us, we will likely be able to raise money if we need or so choose, which immensely lessens any survival risk as we continue to work our way through this pandemic to recovery and transformation. AMC's comeback story is at the center of yet another major inflection point. In the 1980s, it was the home release with VHS. In the 1990s and 2000s, it was DVD and Blu-rays. Today, it's streaming. But AMC and other theater chains are finding themselves quite needed, as major streaming services are learning that they need audiences to return to the theaters first. There's no reason why theaters can't coexist with streaming. People all have kitchens in their houses, but they go out to eat in restaurants. They can make content for streaming. They can make content for theatrical release. And the world is big enough, consumer appetites are large enough that we can all live harmoniously. Movie theaters in a way, and even as big as AMC is, for AMC, they're like a bespoke, curated, event-creating business.
The most watched moments in TV history. You look at the Super Bowl, uh, shows on networks. I mean, these are millions of people watching. But if you look at some of the most popular videos on YouTube, those videos have millions of views within 10 minutes. Bigger than Amazon Prime Video, bigger than Hulu, bigger than Disney Plus. YouTube is a juggernaut. I mean, it is represents over 20% of time spent on connected television. With more than 500 hours of video uploaded every minute and over 1 billion hours watched every day, Google's YouTube is the world's second largest search engine. And you need to fry an egg. You need to know how to change a tire. You want to do anything. The how-to to comedy to, I mean, it's an endless source of entertainment. When YouTube launched 15 years ago, it revolutionized the way people could create and share video content online. They made it very easy to post and share things. And you also were entering a phase where many of us had cameras in our cell phones for the first time. And its meteoric growth hasn't subsided. Over 2 billion users visit YouTube every month. And for Google's parent company, Alphabet, it represents a significant portion of its business. In 2019, YouTube generated $15 billion in revenue, and it's likely to surpass that this year with $12.89 billion in revenue so far, which is up about 24% from the same time last year. You can become a millionaire almost overnight with a hit video. Your life can change just by hitting upload. It's sort of one of the most powerful forms of content creation on planet Earth. And remember, it has this incredible price called free. And so free with massive content scale, always something new all around the world is incredibly powerful. But this power hasn't come easy. YouTube has faced controversies, lawsuits, and ever-growing competition over the years. The company has gotten you know, so big that they, they can't always keep up with all of the content that gets uploaded. YouTube was founded in 2005 by three former PayPal employees. The original idea for the service was a video online dating site, but difficulty in getting enough uploads led to a pivot. Alright, so here we are, one of the uh, elephants. This was the first video ever uploaded to YouTube by co-founder Javed Karim. No one could have predicted in that moment what YouTube would become. There was this basic idea that you would be able to, to host video and to, um, and to share video, but the implications of that are so much more than anyone could have, could have originally imagined. Later that year, on December 15, 2005, YouTube officially launched. At this time, the site was receiving 8 million views a day. What YouTube became known for in those early years was what we would refer to as user-generated content, and that introduced this era of identifying YouTube with viral videos, like the famous Charlie Bit My Finger clip or David After Dentist. Is this real life? Shortly after its launch, people began sharing a Saturday Night Live Lonely Island skit, helping catapult YouTube into the mainstream. Unofficial uploads of the music video received more than 5 million collective views within a few months. However, it set in motion the multi-year struggle the tech company would face with copyright lawsuits. Saturday Night Live and its owner, NBC, confronted YouTube and was saying that it was a violation of copyright and it's something the company hadn't quite 
been confronted with yet. For YouTube, it was a long road to being seen as quote unquote legal and good for the industry. I mean, I think the music industry for a long time, remember, didn't believe in the promotional engine of YouTube. And you know, now you can't launch a, a song, you know, a stream, anything without being visible on YouTube. By July 2006, YouTube announced the site was receiving more than 100 million views per day. Google also was working on its own video platform, but what was attractive about YouTube was that they had more viewers. Less than a year after its official launch, Google made the biggest purchase in its history thus far. Hi YouTube, this is Chad and Steve, we're the co-founders of the site, and we just want to say thank you. Today we have some exciting news for you. We've been acquired by Google. Today, Google bought YouTube for $1.65 billion. YouTube's founders are 27 and 29. It is a young person's game. The videos are quick. The fortunes are huge, even though they just don't make media empires the way they used to. At the time, some questioned the deal, but clearly it worked out. I put YouTube into a category very similar to Instagram of it's not clear how big they ever would have gotten without the power of a larger entity. And so I think Google as a buyer was very important. YouTube has become one of Google's most profitable businesses. Its ad revenues far exceed that of its cloud business, and it continues to hold a top ranking spot in social media usage. YouTube has changed considerably in its 15 years. Early on, people were using it to share funny videos, but it also became a popular place for artists. You could upload yourself singing and be discovered and seen by music agents. I mean, even someone like Justin Bieber, like that was how he got a start, how he got noticed. People who had talents or skills they wanted to share with the world didn't need someone else to buy into their talent in order for it to reach a large audience. In 2007, YouTube introduced the YouTube Partner Program, allowing users to monetize their channels. That gave birth to new careers that didn't exist. Within maybe 10-ish months, I was at income parity with a job I hated versus making videos on phones in my one-bedroom apartment. It was one of the few places, especially at that time, where you could actually earn money by creating something in the digital space um, without needing to set up an entire whole business and, and you know advertising sales department on your own. A lot of early YouTubers have built lucrative careers on the site. If you're a creator, by far the most visible, powerful platform in video to monetize is YouTube. And there are creators that are making millions and millions of dollars every month from the platform. YouTube has done a lot to embrace creators and encourage production on the platform. You want to make a channel about plants? We're going to give you everything you need to be able to distribute that and, and build an audience around that. YouTube's impressive growth only kept accelerating. By May 2010, it was streaming 2 billion views a day. Google brought its strengths to the service, implementing its recommendation and search algorithms. The reason YouTube was so successful, aside from the creators, was sort of the rise of the algorithm. The what made it work is that you could discover content you were interested in, and then the recommendation engine that gave you other things to watch based on what you had seen, that's what made YouTube go vertical. The platform basically both anticipates your needs based on who you subscribe to or the type of stuff that you watch regularly, um, or has gotten better at introducing you to things that it thinks you might like based on what other people are watching. You ended up never leaving, and it really was all about keeping you in the ecosystem, and then obviously no company's better than Google than monetizing time spent. But as other streaming services like Netflix, Hulu, and Prime Video became popular, 
YouTube wanted to diversify the type of content on the platform and started creating its own. We've done about 50 YouTube originals. 50? Yes, and in, the last, in the last two years. I'd say the original content hasn't taken off as much as they would have liked. And while it's still early, you definitely don't see the same amount of viewers you would see on say like a Netflix original. They were dabbling in content in that world of Netflix and Amazon and Disney Plus, et cetera. Being a relatively small player in content, I think is a very hard place to be. And so I don't think it's surprising at all that that effort has been increasingly just scaled back and scaled back with the focus really being on user-generated content. It also started rolling out paid subscriptions, YouTube Red, now YouTube Premium, YouTube Music, and YouTube TV. YouTube now has over 30 million music and premium paid subscribers. YouTube Premium, that basically offers users ad-free YouTube content. YouTube TV, which is supposed to be the company's answer to cable cutters. YouTube TV, however, has been slower to catch on. YouTube TV now has more than 3 million paid subscribers. The idea of paying a subscription for YouTube is challenging for a lot of consumers. And these are nice incremental businesses like YouTube TV and YouTube Music, but they're relatively small compared to what we're talking about in terms of the scale of the user-generated uh, ad-supported content that is the core of YouTube. One of YouTube's biggest categories has been in music. Almost all the most viewed videos on YouTube are music videos. Even from the early years, YouTube was a place where people could engage in the experience of music. Coachella is live streaming and they partnered with YouTube. And so people were on YouTube who couldn't go to the festival themselves from around the world they were viewing. YouTube has expanded the functionality of its player to make ads interactive, even allowing links directly to products where a customer can make a purchase. The holy grail of advertising for any brand, right, is to actually be able to move a car off of a lot, to move a product off a shelf. Now it's literally just click a button and buy, and that product can be sitting at your door in two days. Live streams are quickly growing as well, a feature unique to YouTube compared to other streaming giants. Kids content is another popular category on the platform. Channels for kids are some of the most watched, with tens of millions of subscribers. In 2015, YouTube launched a dedicated YouTube Kids app just for children's videos. As these platforms grow at massive scale, it's becoming increasingly challenging to manage the content being uploaded. YouTube, like any social platform, uh, has creators who are uploading questionable content. Early on, YouTube faced a litany of lawsuits around copyright infringement. One of the most prominent cases was a multi-year $1 billion suit by Viacom. The companies eventually settled, paving the way for media companies and YouTube to work together. In the early days of YouTube, it was, it was a haven for like copyright materials. I mean, you saw there were movies, TV shows, anything was sort of up there. And then uh, movie studios and music studios came after creators. But ultimately, you saw them start to realize that this was a viable platform. And there was almost kind of an unholy peace that was struck. One of the important things that happened over the life cycle of YouTube was the introduction of what we call content ID, but it's basically uh, a backend technology that allows us to, allows rights holders to track and understand what content um, is being posted of theirs online. Content moderation has been another one of YouTube's biggest hurdles. Which posts to remove and which ones to keep has proven to be quite the challenge. You've, you've seen the rise of conspiracy theory videos and hate-filled videos. And YouTube has tried to respond quickly to those. They made a number of policy changes in 2019 that included banning certain videos that would 
pronounce any one group superior to another, but these policy changes came after horrible backlash. Recently, the debate around repealing Section 230 has intensified, a statute that protects social networks from the content users post. It's time to come up with a new legal structure that doesn't necessarily strip away some of the all, all of the benefits of Section 230, but replaces it with something that's more appropriate for where we are now. Are you acting as the purveyor of truth? Are you a media company or are you a technology platform? And to this point, the company has largely tried to defend itself saying that it is just a technology platform. Misinformation has been another hurdle for YouTube. Increasingly, people are turning to platforms like YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter for news, and content there isn't always accurate. They've moved pretty swiftly on some of the um, false medical claims, immediately put up policies that would ban false medical claims on YouTube. But famously, they still weren't able to catch some false information from going viral, like Plandemic, which had a lot of false information about the COVID-19 virus. And it says that it's preparing policies for the COVID-19 vaccine. So it's already preparing to you know, remove misinformation that goes against expertise. As YouTube has attempted to keep inappropriate content off its site, challenges have emerged with those who review graphic videos that aren't caught by its AI. The hope from all of these social network companies is that they can rely on this technology to do the jobs that you know, humans don't want to do, ideally. But the companies even still haven't been able to do that yet. YouTube is dealing with lawsuits from contractors who were exposed to disturbing content. Facebook is also dealing with similar lawsuits. Just in training alone, uh, they were subjected to a lot of violent videos. At the end of the day, we're an information company. Um, we have the access to Google, some of the algorithms there. Um, we have the resources to deploy. Um, we've committed to having, last year we committed to having over 10,000 people who are working on controversial content. Anybody who uploads a video is at the, the mercy and service of, of YouTube. You know, they have the right to terminate channels as they see fit, to suspend channels uh, as they see fit. And I think we've seen YouTube respond very quickly in a lot of ways to some of these controversies. And I think more quickly than any other social platforms out there. On top of the controversies and lawsuits, YouTube faces ever-growing competition. Social media giants like Facebook, TikTok, and Snap, as well as streamers like Netflix, Amazon, and Disney Plus are all vying for people's attention. YouTube has a clear advantage to its competitors on mobile, where it dominates 70% of the total time spent watching the top five entertainment apps. You think about all the money that gets spent on, whether it's Netflix or Disney Plus, and how many billions of dollars are spent to create that content. They don't spend anything at YouTube to create all of this content. Their biggest challenge is just keeping the servers and making the interface and discovery as good as possible. YouTube isn't so much trying to compete in the premium content category, which Netflix, Disney, and HBO own. This is who YouTube is. YouTube means free content. It doesn't mean premium paid for content. That's Netflix's world. That's Amazon Prime's world. YouTube potentially faces its greatest threat from TikTok, an app that has taken the world by storm and is featuring short form content not all that different from what was seen in YouTube's early days. If you think about what TikTok is today, it's music, sort of karaoke, comedy, dance, performance. A lot of the things that you saw early on when you think about YouTube, this is really the first thing I've seen that even has a shot at replicating the YouTube model. Nothing else is even close. 
YouTube has rolled out Shorts, a short-form video app with features similar to TikTok. Shorts is basically part of a, a larger effort to just simply um, make it easier for people to engage with the kind of content they're interested in in a way that makes sense for them and it makes sense for the content. But YouTube does have a strong position in the market that will be challenging to dethrone. The beauty of YouTube is that it has scale that nobody else has, like the actual size of its revenues and what it can offer in terms of the brands and visibility for any type of content creator is unparalleled. Nobody can do today what YouTube can do. You don't win by looking backwards and looking around. You win by looking forward and looking at your customers and figuring out what do they want? How can I be better at what we do? So by giving people A, a platform to share their opinions, and B, paying them for it, YouTube is really well positioned for the future.